0: Everybody. It is St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2023. And if you're watching on Facebook, I'm going to stand up for a moment because I need to prove my Irish heritage. I am wearing a kilt today. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. I am your host, Lisa flanagan Salberg. I only bring up the maiden name on a few days of the year. And today I am joined with a fellow patient advocate and and heart transplant recipient and friend, Greg Ruff. Greg, good morning.
1: Hey, good, good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So
0: good to see you here on so many levels. We are both in a small group of individuals. We probably should join our own support group for this. We are founders of nonprofit organizations focused on cardiomyopathy, I focus on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you focus on dilated cardiomyopathy. And yes, there's a crossover and some people with HCM develop DCM and some DCM families find some HCMs hiding in there. So let's just call ourselves distant cousins at the moment. Tell us a little bit about why DCM Foundation, tell us your story a little bit so people understand why we do what we do. I guess I'll
1: start with 2014. I was formerly diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy. There were some signs before issues, right? Not diagnosed, ignored as probably 90% of hypertrophic or dilated cardiomyopathy patients experience. And as I was diagnosed, I lived in Columbus, Ohio. I was at the Ohio State University Ross Heart Hospital. And one of the historically major researchers in dilated cardiomyopathy genetics was a guy named Dr. Ray Hirschberger. He was actually treating me. And he said, hey, Greg, you know, I was an entrepreneur in my career. And he said, hey, Greg, you'd like to start things. You know, there is no patient family group for Delia Curry. The least has been doing this well for 20 some years. And there was nothing in 2017. So really beginning in 2018, and it affects, you know, I think both have affected about one in 250 people, you know, so we're each looking at over a million people in the United States alone. And so there needed to be a patient family group. So we started the the, the the DCM Foundation. And as probably Lisa knows, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, without HCMa, there probably isn't a real good site for explanation of HCM and, and a place to get help. And that's what we started to do. We built a website first, kind of explaining dilated cardiomyopathy. And then now we're slowly bringing in services to help DCM patients. That's a, kind of how it all began.
0: You get diagnosed in 2014. I think we might've talked early on, somebody connected us and and then I didn't hear from you for a while, or you, know, you were off to building your thing. And then we ran into each other. I think it was HSFA 2019. Philly, I believe. Philadelphia, yes, before the world shut down. You know, back then, that pre-COVID time. Isn't it so weird that we timeline things with that now? We meet, we were in a session together, and I remember I came up to you and I said, well, how are you doing? And what what's your story? And you're like, I'm okay right now. And I'm looking at you going, you look awfully pale though, buddy. Have you been listed yet? And you're like, no. Let's just talk a little bit about the personal because it drives the passion. How long did you wait from diagnosis to list for transplant? And then how long has it been since your transplant?
1: Seven years diagnosis to transplant in my journey. And then In 2014, 15, when I was diagnosed, also understood it was genetic laminate, several genes involved, actually, and and runs rampantly in my family. A couple from my mother and one from my father. And then the real disease causings for my father, kind of weird, kind of strange, very uncommon. And so two of my three kids, all three of my kids have one of the genes. Two of my children have the, you know, probably the more disease-causing gene. And so once we sort of found that out, you realize you. You know, we need to do something here, you know, so it was 35% ejection fraction diagnosed 2014, third degree heart block, left bundle branch block, um, because Lamin-A, you know, and, and we talked, you know, SADS, you talk arrhythmia, arrhythmogenic, so Lamin-A not only has the dilated cardiomyopathy, but it also has arrhythmogenic component. So my heart electric was kind of shut down. I had a reduced ejection fraction. I kind of hung there probably till 2017, 18. And at that point, my e- ejection fraction popped down to 20%. It was a pretty precipitous drop. Mm-hmm. And the electrical activity, I mean, I lost all device, beat my heart every beat. and started developing more and more VTAC, ATAC, PVCs, And so, you know, rhythmogenically, it was it, was, it was a real issue. So the last couple Last three years before the transplant, we're pretty much uh, boxing off the back of your heels in the 12th round survival type of thing. Uh, I've been there. Yeah. So listed for transplant, not really until early May, 2021, and July 15, 2021, wow. I was actually transplanting.
0: You went pretty quick once once you pulled the trigger, you were there. You're two years now, almost post-transplant? 20 months, 20 months on, this, 20 two
1: months. days ago. So 20 months and two days. Wow. So yeah, um,
0: you've got color in your face and you look healthy and, you know, we're we're back out there fighting the good fight. You, like I, didn't really take a lot of downtime. We were the lucky ones in transplant. We bounced pretty quickly back. Yeah. And now we're here with these new hearts and a mission to find other hearts. I'm really excited to be part of an initiative that that you spearheaded. And I want to talk a little bit about the consortium. And, um, I want you to tell me a little bit about like what you were thinking and why a consortium and why partners.
1: Again, thanks for having me. And and again, I've with heart transplant, want to thank my donor donor family. I've not been in touch with them. I've reached out a few times, but, you know, I was talking to a transplant patient yesterday and, and you know, y- you forget your gratitude over time. It starts waning. And that's one thing I got to keep reminding myself is the, the medical team, my family, friends, and then obviously the donor and donor family. So A lot of gracious there. So when we started the foundation, started talking to a number of researchers, biopharma companies that were looking into therapies or to to further research in dilated cardiomyopathy. And the two things we learned is that most biopharma companies, most researchers will look at all types of cardiomyopathy. They may be looking at a DCM gene. Therapy, HCM, arrhythmogenic, uh, LVNC, restrictive, whatever. So it, it tends to be in the medical world where they're going to def- they're going to look at solutions uh, on an individual basis. They're they're tending to look at multiple solutions.
0: Pause there for one second because not all of our listeners are familiar with some of these other disease states. So we're going to take a moment to do a little brief education on the types of cardiomyopathies that there are. So if you're listening to Tales from the Heart, you know hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Thick, stiff heart muscle can have multiple presentations, apical, mid-cavity, outflow tract obstruction, no obstruction. You could be gene positive and phenotype negative, normal heart still. That's hypertrophic. Dilated cardiomyopathy can be a consequence or a burnt out form of HCM, or can be an independent disease state with either genetic or environmental causes that make the heart walls thin and lose the ejection fraction. We're in HCM, we have a super normal, stiff, thick, collapsing, powerful heartbeat. In dilated cardiomyopathy, it is... A little a little push of the heart and it's lost its muscle and we need to get that muscle back. It
1: could be bigger, especially the left ventricle. You dilate
0: out the left ventricle instead of thick and small and stiff, it's bubbled out like a balloon that's been stretched too much. So we're the balloon you can't blow up in HCM and dilated is the balloon that's been blown up too many times and has gotten weakened walls. Um that that would be like on, you know, the board exam if you're taking it for cardiology only kidding. So then there's arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, also known as right ventricular dysplasia, where the right ventricle gets very fatty and infiltrated with that. And we lose muscle in the right side, causing a lot of arrhythmias. Non-compaction or LV non-compaction is a little bit more like HCM, but not quite like HCM because the walls are like spongy and they have these trabeculi in them and there's room for claw and, It can look like HCM, and some of the genes cross with HCM, and some of them cross with DCM, and we're still working out those non-compaction folks, and we have a lot of them within our HCM community. Then there's the arrhythmogenic diseases on their own, so the channelopathies, which some will argue are cardiomyopathies, and some will say aren't cardiomyopathies. We include them. We're inclusive. We're not exclusive. So these are when the electrical system is abnormal, like long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, and other syndromes that impact the, the conduction system of the heart. How'd I do, Greg? Perfect.
1: That's okay. Perfect. That's perfect.
0: So now we know the diseases that we're talking about that fall under the umbrella of genetic cardiomyopathies. Yeah. Continue.
1: And, we've, and we found that, you know, especially biopharma companies, if you look at their pipelines, will include many of these. Uh, the second thing is I asked, you know how could we be helpful to researchers, to, 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 you know, clinical trials for biopharma companies, everyone came back and said, you know, there's a lot of genes involved in, in cardiomyopathy. I think we'd probably say, you know, and it's changing, it's moving, it's growing, but, you know, we use 55 to 75 genes. We, you know, probably, there's probably 70, 75 genes involved uh, with all the different cardiomyopathies. Um, and and given that it affects again HCM over a million people, DCM, over a million people. I don't know the ARBC, I don't know the I don't know the other ones. But you, you know we're talking three four million people in the United States. Probably three million people. In the oh, yeah. States, pre- pretty pretty prominent. It's not a rare disease, but when you break it down on a gene by gene basis, because therapies tend to work on a gene group or gene specific basis, it becomes rare diseases. And they said you know what always slows and inhibits our development of research and also therapies is there aren't enough people that have identified with a certain gene that would like to be, uh, would, would willing to be in a research study or clinical trial, which is important. And so we decided the best way to attack this is to say, so I looked and said, okay, I want to, I want to, my kids, other people's kids, other people's, right? We, we want to speed the development. And if they're saying the choke point in a lot of timeframes is is the identification and participation of specific types of cardiomyopathy, specific genetic cardiomyopathy patients, we need, you know, we need to help. And so that's when we decided about 14 months ago, 15, 16 months ago, to work with all the different cardiomyopathy groups in the United States and create the genetic cardiomyopathy awareness consortium, um, which we just launched last week. Uh, and obviously, you know, includes Lisa HCMA, a big supporter, and, and I think DCM and seven other groups. We can talk about that, the groups later. Um, and really is to uh, uh, promote the awareness of uh, genetics and cardiomyopathy. We know that in all cardiomyopathies, the research is pressing 50%, 40%, 50% of, of the cause uh, of a, of your cardiomyopathy could be genetic. That number was zero, it was 10, 20, 30, 40. So whatever we say today, you know, we may not be perfectly accurate, but it's gonna be much higher. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, but only we find about 1% of, of cardiomyopathy patients in general get genetically tested. HCM is a little higher. There are a few less genes involved. Lisa's been doing a lot of great work in this area for a long, long time. And so DCM is, is the, the numbers we we say about 1%. Maybe it's 3%, maybe it's a half percent. But a very, very small percentage get genetic tested. So we we launched GCAC, Genetic Cardiomyopathy Awareness Consortium, in the U.S., and later will be global with Global Heart Hub on June 26th at launch. One, to increase the awareness about genetics and cardiomyopathy, and two, provide a a path for people to get tested on their own. The medical community, most cardiologists don't understand this. Most cardiologists will not recommend you to be genetically tested. Uh, and and so we think the patient groups have to take it on our own to really start uh, rattling patients, that then can rattle the medical community to make a change here. So that's. Genius. So
0: I, I I love the concept since we originally talked about it, and I really also appreciate your thoughtfulness and saying okay. There's all of these things going on out there and they're good at this and they're good at this. Where can we connect everybody? Where do we have synergistic energy where you can help the DCM community and provide services, but we can go a bit more global? As you and I are both transplant patients and you you get something else when you get a transplant, you get implanted with a, a level of pure gratitude that can't be described in any other way because hell, we're not supposed to be here right now. Right. So, yeah, so we're we're really committed to making things different for the next generation. So maybe they don't have to go through this. You know, there, there is something very deep about both of our passions that I think really speak to the point of why the patient community is coming together on this particular topic. So one of the things I'm surprised with, and we talked about it briefly before, is Um, When you get listed for a heart transplant out of all the blood work they do, they don't do genetics. They're not looking for the genetic causes. And I know within the HCMA community, you'll see family histories of multiple transplants and people will think they're transplanted for DCM or HCM or non-compaction. And they have all these different names, but we can actually get to the core of these families and identify who's at risk earlier and with the new drugs that are coming out today and potential genetic therapies, we can make it different for them. Gotcha. So knowing your gene is so important. Yeah. So why do you think it's so important? I give you my reason.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, so today's medical community generally treats the symptoms and tries to cure the symptoms. And that's, that's medical technology in general. Um, and, and there are again, you know, you know, how much can you do? Costs, right? Whatever. There, there are there are reasons for that. Um, lack of knowledge, big one. But I think that uh, for me, for instance, with Lambda A had a lot of rhythmogenic components. Mm. They wouldn't have identified that a laminate gene. They wouldn't have put an ICD in, and I would have died before I got a transplant. Um, my heart, I would have died because I had a, you know, v, a number of VTech episodes, etc. So that's really, 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 really important. Um, and I think also something that you were kind of leaning towards a minute ago, um, the importance of, I think, our groups working together. And so, you know, why did we create GCAC? And Lisa's working on some things and some other groups where we work together. One, there are crossovers with all of these, as Lisa mentioned before. And the more they learn, the more the crossover is going to be, number one. So it's, you know, we've sort of drip, drawn these lines, right? These different. But they're they're pretty squishy, ever moving lines, right? They wobble. The lines yeah. the lines wobble. And number two, given the state of of understanding cardiomyopathy, you know the, the vast majority of people don't understand it. It kills a, a ton of people each year, and nobody knows about it. When, when you're done with cardiomyopathy, nobody knows. Well, well you know, did you have a heart attack? Did you you know Did you get a valve replaced? You know, you know I got a new heart. You got the whole heart replaced? No, I just got part of the heart replaced. Whatever.
0: Wouldn't you love that question? Yeah. Did anybody ever ask you oh, if you yeah. picked out your donor yet? Yeah. I was asked yeah. that twice.
1: Yeah, 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 I was on a website. But the thing is, so, so there's so much to do. None of us can do enough for our patients, uh, for cardiomyopathy patients individually. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot more cooperation working where, you know, DCM funders pick a lead on GCAC Lisa will take a lead on something else. You know, Some of the other groups will take a, take a lead. And I think that's really, really important. And I think we're going to start to see that more and more and more. And it's really, really important because you know we've just scraped the tip of the iceberg that we can see on genetics and cardiomyopathy. And then our services to be able to provide to cardiomyopathy patients and family members, there's a long way to go. And we're going to have to work together on a lot of things to, 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 to even come close to fully servicing patients and families.
0: So the services to patients, I think, in the space of genetics is first to, to understand the gene, help families, educate their own family members about why genetic testing in our family is important. And, you know, I started today tongue in cheek with my, you know, St. Patrick's Day greeting to all, but my HCM came from Ireland. Um, So this day has a little bit of an odd meaning to me because my Irish grandfather died at 42, 43 from HCM in 1953. And I I can't help but think about him today. And I can't help but think about why our family name was our family name. Uh, I am descendant from the Hart family in Ireland, H-A-R-T. So they used to name you for what you were known for as a family. So how far back does HCM really go in my Irish roots? I don't know. We, we, you know, potato famine, we ditched, we came to America and that's pretty much it. I don't know any family members that are left in my genetic line in, in, in Ireland. But you might be out there. And if you are, call me, we'll talk. Um, and I'll get you a gene test to see if you have a myosin binding protein C mutation um, because that's where it came from. But if we knew more and we can help our cousins and our siblings and the rest of our families understand genetic testing, it can actually save lives. I'm gonna lean into a story we told on HCM Awareness Day this year, and it's Jillian's story. And it's a cautionary tale. I'm not gonna belabor the entire family history. You can go back to their YouTube channel, watch the legislative briefing. The first half an hour, you will will you'll, You will hear Jillian's story in detail, but there was a family member diagnosed with HCM. There was a long period of time between that and that family member's father needing heart surgery for something that now we know was HCM, but they didn't think it was, went to a low volume center, did not survive the surgery. Aunts get diagnosed, mom gets diagnosed with AFib, like not really HCM, but something's going on with the heart. But there's such a delay to talk about it as a genetic disease in the family that by the time they find that Jillian has a murmur and has developed disease, doesn't just have the gene, but has developed disease, the timeline from their identification to her death was less than 60 days. So there wasn't time to get her therapy on board. And she died at 17. And that will, it's coming up on a year. It hasn't even been a year for this family. And they shared their story with us in February. So we're, Grateful to her mom, Amy, and family for sharing that story. It's painful. But there's so much we can do if we talk about genes within families. And no harm, no foul to other family members here. They didn't know that they should be sharing this information. They didn't know it could have significant consequence like this. And we all feel a little genetic guilt when we hand down HCM. Um, it's way better to feel a little bit of genetic guilt for handing down a gene than not telling them that it's there if you know.
1: Yeah, they going to a funeral
0: going to a funeral or multiple funerals in some families. So we want families to be whole. And I keep going back to that statement. I want families to be whole. My family's not whole. My family's broken. I've lost members too young, which have devastating impacts that go beyond a funeral. There's a hole in the family forever. And there are Wounds. There are generational grief. There are moments of profound sadness in these families. But we're at a moment where all of that baggage that we've been carrying is turning into hope that it doesn't have to continue down this path. I'm getting emotional, but we can stop things potentially. Look, going to ruin my makeup. We can stop things. And that's why the consortium is so important. It's, it's families, it's wholeness, it's getting there in time. So why is it important to you? What What's your family passion? You talked about your daughters being affected. What are your hopes for the future?
1: Yeah. So, you know, right now there is no one hundred percent cure for cardiomyopathy. Any of it, yeah. You know, so I know people that have lived with, you know, the disease dilated cardiomyopathy, HCM, even with certain genetic mutations, for fifty years, forty years, and you know, and 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 so there's no known path. There's no so you know having a genetic mutation or getting the disease is not a you know death sentence, <laughs> but there's no cure besides a transplant. Right. And that's which, exchanging, which one I,
0: exchanging one set of problems for another
1: one set of problems. another. These problems are a lot less, at least for me. me too. And, and, and so uh, what by getting more people tested? And again, it's not that hard. It's a spit test. They can send it to your home. Um, insurance pays. You know, if you've been diagnosed with cardiomyopathy insurance, with all the information gathered, will pay for the test uh, for diagnosed cardiomyopathy patients about three quarters of the time. Uh, you really the tests are complicated. The results are complicated. It comes back. You can't interpret them yourselves. So you want to have a conversation with genetic counselor. Uh, and, and there are some. There's a link on the GCAC website about getting tested. You can go. It's a group called Genome Medical. You have a conversation with genetic counselor. You have to get the test. Spit test at home. You get uh, conversation with genetic counselor on the back end. Uh, insurance pays. It's very probably about half the time insurance, it depends on insurance, we'll pay for the genetic counseling appointments. If it's all out of pocket, going through the process we've set up, it's it's 600 bucks. So, you know, one of the...
0: Uh, uh, so let's just clarify that with the pre-test counseling, post-test counseling, and genetic test, yep. $600 whole. It's yes, yes. Now, some people in our community, in the HCM community, because we hold a lot of educational seminars on HCM and we have a lot of information on the pre side of this, that some of our people do forego the pre-test counseling. I don't necessarily think that's the wisest thing, but -hmm. if you're truly educated and you feel like you're ready to do this and money is the issue, that's where I would spare the money, not on the post-test counseling, because that's where, that's where the real data is. You
1: really got to do the post-test. The process we set up was pre, the reason being is because, you know, we've got, we didn't we didn't want to explain. I don't think we can explain the website because every case is different. Every family is different. Every, and so the reason we got the pre-test, that's the genome genome medical set up, which is good. But like, there are, should I get tested? Should I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was best because I, we don't think we can accurately explain to folks because every case is different, even if you have cardiomyopathy, DCM, HCM, LVNC, you right? Uh, you know, even within those groups, every case is different. Family history, your medical history, things like that. So yeah, so you can do. It. So it's still not. But the, the reality is, it's still not. People think it was tens of thousands of dollars. It's a spit test. They'll send it to your home. You know, if you have a cardiomyopathy, um, you're spending a ton of money. If you have insurance, you're probably maximizing your out-of-pocket deductible every year, right? It's, it's, it's an expensive disease. It's not good, but genetic testing is not difficult and it's not expensive. And, and, and so everyone, I think everyone should do it. So.
0: I've always thought it was strange from the onset of genetic testing that we talk about the price of genetic testing differently than we talk about other things we pay for in healthcare. You know, getting an echocardiogram, which we do a lot of, you know, is a billable rate of about 1500 bucks. Right. But you, what you're negotiated out to pay based on your contracts and your insurance access, co-pays and deductibles is typically a lot less than that. And the same can be true for genetic testing. Um, and I, I am a bit fascinated that every talk that I've probably been to on genetic testing since the early 2000s, where this is what it does and this is how much it costs. I never heard that in any other talk. We didn't talk about this is an MRI and this is how much it costs.
1: Yeah. And the medical doctors I talked to, God, people can't pay four or 500 bucks. I mean, now when you go to a, a large heart failure institution, they'll charge like a facility fee to walk in. There's like a $200 facility fee lots of times to walk in the door. I mean, that's to walk in the door. And so uh, it's inter- it's interesting. This is really treated differently and it's really under a microscope. And, and I don't understand why uh maybe because it they haven't done it for 50 years and it's not that widely accepted yet uh not sure why but it is treated much differently uh and and i've had 100 200 conversations about that and
0: I, we can't I, I, you and i get a lot of blood work cuz we're transplant patients and like we get blood work it's expensive like it's, it's a couple hundred bucks every time i go for a blood draw and i get i get testing but I've never, ever heard anybody talk about why they should or shouldn't pay for a particular blood test to see what's inside of my body. Like yeah. they, no. we don't talk about it there. So I think yeah. I think um, part of the awareness consortium will be to, to demystify the cost of the price and the access of genetic testing. It is highly effective. Now in HCM today, it's 2023. I always have to check the date when I say that. Sometimes I start with 19 because I forget what year it is. Uh, But it's 2023 now, and um, we know that about 40% of those with clinically diagnosed HCM will be identified with a known pathogenic or likely pathogenic, meaning that it causes disease, mutation 40% of the time. So I take 100 people with HCM and we do them all, 40% will have a pathogenic mutation. 60% will have either a variant of uncertain significance, which may turn into something in the future after we learn more about it, or they have what is typically referred to as a negative test. I prefer no mutation found test because I think it's more explicit, Um, but we keep changing, like times evolve. If you asked me a couple of years ago, or maybe even listened to an early Tales from the Heart, you would have heard me say 50-50. Well, two things have happened. HCM awareness has grown and more people are doing genetic testing and some of them may not really know HCM that well. So maybe they're ordering the wrong panels and they're getting blanks or it's not really HCM, it's really LVH from hypertension or there's some other disease process going on. But when you look at the actual centers with the high referral population and the clean diagnosis, it's now like 40, 41, 2% that you're getting a hit on. And that's a pretty good number for today in genetics. Um, you know, we, we didn't figure this out that that long ago. So we're still evolving and there'll be more genes. But if we don't get organized about raising awareness and getting access to testing and bring those numbers up and get the whole community out there testing, we're never gonna know what the real numbers are.
1: No, agreed. They're not perfect, the results aren't perfect and and the knowledge is changing. But um, you know, if you know you if you were tested, and, and you know, y- you just should know what's causing it, right? And it may come up as a known variant, disease-causing variant. It may be a variant of unsignificance. Like we've seen this around, it seems to 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 be in patients that have developed this this you know type of cardiomyopathy, um, um, or you know, you get no gene identified, but you know there's a family history. There's something going on they just haven't identified yet. So so that's why it's very important also to have a conversation with the genetic counselor on the back end because the results are confusing. They're not perfect. They're getting better. uh, But but because you identify positive or negative doesn't mean, identify positive doesn't mean you're gonna get the disease. I, I have three gene mutations associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. My sister is two years older, has all three of the same genes nothing she's fine you get a little you know a little arrhythmias here and there but but like she's you know she she's she's fine so because that's important you come up with a positive variant it doesn't mean you're going to get the disease it means you're more likely to get the disease on the other hand if you you know you see hcm dcm whatever running in your family and and you get a negative or a non variant or you know a non positive doesn't mean there isn't a genetic play. It's just things they haven't figured it out yet. They haven't discovered it yet, and they will at some point. So you probably need to treat it like genetics and and get people in your family tested and things like that. So it's really really important. And I, for my kids, understanding that there that gene is in play, they're getting tested. They're getting ECGs, holder, monitor, uh, uh, they've even done a cardiac MRI through a, re- a research program uh, for free. Uh, you know, and an echo. So if and you talked about that that young woman that unfortunately had had passed away, um, we can catch it very on, very early on and start the appropriate drug therapies, uh, or uh, put an ICD in uh, to prevent sudden sudden you know car- sudden cardiac arrest or sudden death, and so that's really really important that you identify to save your own life. Laminate if I didn't have an ICD I would have died right. Uh, My family, catch it early, because if you catch it early, especially even without genetic complete solutions being, there's drugs like Entresto that have changed. There's drugs coming out with a lot of companies now that- Myosin
0: inhibitors and myosin activators. We're on the opposite side of the same drug.
1: It may not cure all the disease, but may take you to live a very long and healthy life with the disease. So so it's important that drug therapy starts as early as possible because the more your heart is damaged, the further along disease. I believe personally, I'm not a doctor. There's a less that they can do um, once your heart is damaged. It's 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 pretty far down the road. One, you could die, and two, there's less that they can do from a therapy standpoint. So, uh, very very important that you catch it. So
0: I, I keep going back to. Root. Oh, you have this. So
1: sorry, yeah,
0: I have got mine. Oh, there you go. You got a shamrock. I'm so happy for you. Didn't wear green today, people, but you know, we'll let him go. He's got he's got a little green there. So you know, we're both talking about you know why genetic testing for an individual family is important, and I know the value in my family. You know the value in your family, but why are registries important to collect? multiple families and multiple experiences because we are all ends of one like we we're our own story when we put us together what happens
1: yeah so so i think that again one of the biggest problems that i think researchers and biopharma companies have is identifying patients with a certain genetic variation certain background certain medical history um in it's in it it has stalled it has stopped. It has delayed a lot of research projects, a lot of clinical trials. And so a registry is really important where a researcher or a, a, a clinical trial a bio can go and say, hey, you know, if, if you have to consent, all your information always is private. It's protected by HIPAA. That's one thing. So you never have to worry about that. The second thing is, though, is you can consent to say, hey, if a uh, researcher or a biopharma company has some potential research, uh, program or clinical trial that meets my medical criteria, I would allow them to reach out to me, right? That's, that's what you do. And you don't agree to be in that clinical trial; You just agree to have a conversation about it, it. learn about it, which is really important. And so, you know, we have to get bigger and bigger registries given the number of genes we talked about, given the number of therapies, you know, that are potentially under development, We've got to make it easier. We've got to. We've got to for the researchers and the biopharma companies to identify a number. So again, you take you know seventy genes. Probably, let's use the name seventy. Right, that's going to change in cardiomyopathy in general. Um, you Started with three of, with like, us, and now yeah. we're up to like thirty. Yeah, and we're probably forty. I mean, so so it's it's uh, it's really really important that people get on a registry. Uh, so they can get into research studies and potential clinical trials. Um, That is gonna speed the advancements of of potential cures for this disease.
0: So one of the things I just thought about synergistically here is we've just launched our new HCM Nest project, which we're doing a push out of information. So after somebody's contacted us for an intake, they'll then get a communique either through text message, email, um, text message, email, or app. I forgot there's three ways to get it. Um, we're gonna be sending follow-up information. A lot of people have been asking me over the years, can you take everything that you just said to me and write it in an email so I have it for later? And Mm -hmm. you say, no, I don't have time. So we've created a way to do that. So every time we finish a talk, we're gonna send you out some information and we could actually put a link to the consortium into our Nest. So team who's listening to this, um, remember to add that to Nest so that every time we're talking to somebody, we're engaging them. So they'll not only be able to participate in the registry and hear things about genetics through your connection and through the consortium connection, but they're gonna also be able to consent for research within the HCM patient journey registry, which will also cross over and we'll be working together. So you will definitely not miss opportunities or ideas or information if you're in HCMA and in the consortium, we will put that together. So you're, you're going to stay aware. And over the next- I'm going to say three to four years, things are going to start moving very quickly here. It's it's already happening in HCM. There's trials planned for later this year. It's, it's going to move fast once it starts. And there's going to be a lot of noise. And we're going to try to synthesize that noise into actionable moments for you because it's big, it's heady, it's intense, it's hopeful, it's scary. There's a lot of words I could throw on this but it's it's happening. So we have to stay aware, engaged, and make sure everybody's education level is as high as it possibly can be. And we, Greg and I, are not here to tell you, join this trial. We're here to say, here is a conversation for you to have with this group of individuals who are doing this research. Oh, you don't like that one? There's this one over here we can send you to as well. And as long as you wanna keep having those conversations, we wanna help facilitate them. Would that be accurate, Greg?
1: No, uh, agreed. Agreed. Really important. And you know, with the uh, GCAC uh, or the consortium, so our tagline is: you know, why why should you be interested in genetics and cardiomyopathy, and, and why should you get tested? We do it for myself. Do it for yourself, potentially for better treatment. Potentially mm-hmm. to your my family, right? Save 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 potentially your family members' lives. Um, or help them get the proper treatment. And the third is, uh, and I'm forgetting the third. Whatever, my myself, my family, uh, my legacy. The third is my legacy, which is, I think we all, none of us are going to live forever, right? We kind of have a 100-year expiration tag at best, you know, maybe a little more. Most of us less, right? Yeah, I don't know
0: that I want to hit 100. I got looking at hard um, by I'm
1: not, I'm, I'm not going there either. But <laughs> I think wouldn't, wouldn't all of us like to wake up every morning and say, you know, your legacy is that you were part of help saving lives of other HCM, DCM, cardiomyopathy patients. And so do it for yourself, do it for your family, do it for your legacy. Give that to this community that needs your help. Uh, and, and, and and your legacy will be that you were part of the pioneers to help create solutions that will save many, many lives. That's that's just hugely important. That's that's what I want to be known for. You know, that's what I want to be known for. I
0: I have been living that that mission pretty much every day. I would say 27 years, but it, it actually went before that for me. I was in my first clinical trial when I was 18 years old. Wow. And that was my first trial. It was a natural history study. And then I consented to, you know, echo studies and I consented to stress tests and VO2s for research, going back to being, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. I wanted people to learn. I would walk into a hospital and they'd hear my murmur from across the room and they're like, can we bring in the medical students? Yes, yes, you can make them listen. Let me talk to them. Let me tell them what this is really like. And every step we do where we allow somebody to learn from our lived experience, we're changing the future because we're helping the community at large understand our process. But this one feels different to me. Going into the genetic stratosphere feels very different to me. And it's different in good Ways. It's scary to get there. And we're learning how to do genetic therapies through multiple different pathways right now. And we don't know the pathway that's going to be the best for everyone, but we're learning what might work for some. And as we go down that path, we're going to learn more and more and more. We want everybody to be safe. And I'm going to pivot here for a second into patient safety. My sister died because of mismanagement through a clinical trial, okay? I'm really concerned about clinical trial safety. I've been focused on it for nearly 30 years. And we're doing everything as advocates to be at the table, to give feedback, to build the safest trials possible and ask tough questions of, of the trial sponsors and make sure that the people that we know interest in the disease state are present and have their voices heard. We're here to be patients' voices in places that patients don't typically get to go very often. And that's gonna help keep people safer. And the partnership that we've been establishing with many of our partners, both on the pharma side and on the genetic therapy side, They want to know exactly what patients want and feel and need directly from patients without a filter always of the clinician. So they want that direct and they want that clinician and they want that researcher. And that's where you're gonna get the best answers. And that's where we are today. We're on the precipice of big answers. And that's exciting.
1: It is better today than it was with your sister. I mean, would you say that strides have been made that the clinical trials in general, once they get to human- uh, uh, participants is, is safer.
0: Yes. And, and I'm going to tell you why, and I don't talk about this often, Greg, because things are hard to talk about. So 1995 is when my sister and I were in a research project, um, at a very prominent institution in the world. It was actually at the NIH. There was a not great researcher. I'm just going to call him. And he kind of was fast and loose with the rules documented. I got all the documents here to prove what I'm saying. It's been reported in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NBC Nightly News, CBS News. It was everywhere in 95, 96 when it broke. They made mistakes and they admitted it. In 1996, there was a great deal of change in human subject research. And a lot of it came because what happened to my sister opened up eyes and internally they went, wow, we don't have enough protection here. And the policies were changed. If you go back in patient safety and clinical trials and look at when regulations changed, a lot of stuff changed in 1996. What you don't see on it is my sister's fingerprints, but they're there. And she helped create a safer world for everybody. Not just cardiology patients, all patients in clinical trials were positively impacted and kept safer because she wasn't safe. And it's, it's a quiet legacy, um, but maybe I should talk about it more. Because no,
1: it's, it's terrible yeah. that it happened, but the fact that it spurred advancement, better safety, better, uh, terrible sacrifice, but uh, a, a lasting sacrifice that'll, that'll help thousands, if not millions of people. So
0: my sister's death. I truly believed have saved more lives than I can ever count, because it made me stop my career in human resources and redirect and build an organization and find all these people and build these networks and do these things and join a consortium with you. So it it's all goes back to to Lori, who's like over there in the picture. Oh, with me there. she is. She's behind me now. So it's all because of Lori. So that that's my that's Lori's legacy. She's given this to us. And we go forward and we try to do better work. And it's kind of dark, but it's beautiful. And it's why we do what we do. We don't want families to be broken. We want families to be whole.
1: Absolutely. Well said.
0: Yeah. So what else can we talk about today? We've got a few more minutes. So we're both active members of the Cardiomyopathy Council of the Global Heart Hub. Shout out to our partners at Global Heart Hub. Um, looking forward to doing some really meaningful work. We kind of started about a year and a half, two years ago on this endeavor. Uh, we did an awareness project with them last year. We've got some more work coming. So you want to talk a little bit about what you see Global Heart Hub doing?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, again, I think and it goes uh, uh, along the lines that we need to work together, right? And, 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 you know, GCAC is a US-based organization. What we've done is said, hey, Globally, um, we don't have the resources. We don't have the capabilities. You know, We're going to put the campaign, a global hard-hub going to put the campaign in eight languages, 21 countries, I think over 50, 50 patient groups. And so we don't have the So, so it it, it, dovetail, it dovetails very nicely into it. And, and I do think, and I know HCMA's got some international uh, uh, mm-hmm. offices or countries they work with. I don't think we'll do it because of lack of resources and we certainly haven't been around as long. But I think I think it's nice. I think, again, in general, However, groups can work together. And what's interesting about Global Heart Hub is the groups are from size, sophistication, budget. Right? They're all over the, the gamut, and so it's kind of nice too. I think you know to learn what's happening internationally, what's happening in the Netherlands. Right? A big Lamina outpost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stefan Bassant has created the LemonadeCardiac.org. What's happening in Australia, right? What's happening in Germany? That's that's good to know, right? To get a mm-hmm. global perspective. Then I think the other thing is is you know especially the the smaller organizations by working with larger organizations that have been around longer, learning and growing. I think it, I think it speeds their their development. So I think both of those components to inter- internationalization, understanding what's going on in different places around the world. I know that we are brash Americans and we think the center universe is is us, right or wrong. Certainly there's a lot of interesting things going on around the globe. And there's a lot of things that we can learn. And then again, the 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 fact that maybe we could spur quicker and better development with these more recent or young or smaller organizations and learn from us. And at least a a lot of material you create, other people are using, which is really, really great. So, so I think that's great. And I think it's great to have a global footprint. Would love to see, uh, you know, the the drug companies that do the the clinical trials and drug development are doing it on a global basis. You know, Um, it would be great to be able to have a global cardiomyopathy registry at some point, um, it would be great to tear down a lot of these, you know, country by country lines and, and rules and bureaucracy that exist, uh, because it's keeping from development. Now, there's some safety issues, there, there, there are legitimate reasons for it. Um, but it would it, would, it would be great to look at these diseases and look at the solutions on a global basis. And I think global heartache is a step in that direction. So.
0: I think so, too. And um, I've <laughs> I'm going to go down another path I wasn't planning on, but my brain is there today. As patient advocates, you know we want security, we want safety, we want we want access timely to therapies. There, there's a lot on our want list, um, and there's also a lot on the tr- people trying to keep us safe from ourselves list that are a little bit confusing sometimes. And if they're really meant to do that then great. And if there's resources there to ensure that the system works, great. But when there's not, I think we need to, as advocates, as, as not just cardiac advocates, not just myopathy, you know, not, not just us. I think we need to call out and ask for change. Um, I don't think HIPAA works. And I that might be a shocking statement for some people, but I've watched it fail multiple times and the regulatory process for correction is broken. It doesn't work. Yeah. So people can do bad things and get away with it and you think you're safe because they say the word HIPAA. There's really no guts behind it. And yeah. when there's a violation, go look at the statistics. Like 2 or 3% are actually acted upon over, you know, 15-20 years.
1: Yeah. And it creates a lot of barriers and it created you know, the old partner from one of my businesses that I was in, and she used to always say, it's the juice worth the squeeze, and that's a situation where it's a good idea, but in in reality, does it create more impediments to success than it does, And it, it, you know, and I don't, I think, I think, I, I don't know enough. I'm new to this, but yeah, that, that's an issue. And I also the issue too, Lisa, and we talked about this we talked about this earlier, mm-hmm. you know, the the science and the technology, and this always happens, is outpacing our ability to govern it or to put rules in, right? Because it's the changing the way clinical trials are done, changing the way drugs get approved, right? We saw what happened with COVID, what used to take 20 years to 16 months or whatever, whether you're a fan or not, but, but they were able to get too, too quickly why can't we do that more with other other drugs and, and keeping them safe? And it's just all about I think any time you, you have extreme advancement in technology and science, it's really, really hard for regulatory groups to keep up because it's always a lagging factor. Funding is always an issue. Uh, and again, people, the vast majority of human beings just don't like to change their habits and the way they do things. That's 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 human we do it, it be. because we do it. And that's we how we do it got yeah. out and that way yesterday and we're gonna do that way today and we want to do that and, and we're gonna fight doing it a different way I don't really blame the government I don't really blame anybody yeah. I think that it's going to be indicative of any situation but clearly things are moving so quickly and the regulators keep up with proper regulations while also not impeding the progress that's it the, is a
0: tricky balance
1: it's a tricky balance right that's it's a tricky balance and I don't, I certainly don't have the
0: answers. I don't have the answers, but I can certainly point to where there are cracks in the facade. We need to get some plaster on those cracks, or we need to just take down the whole wall and rebuild it. It's really hard to take down a wall and rebuild it. It's probably easier to find corrections or align resources where it can do the most good. But I think as a patient who has benefited with her life, because of clinical trials and research. And as one who has as well, I think we see the value in speed of development. I get a kick out of the fact that, and I'm gonna out myself on age on this one. I was created in time for the first heart transplant to have ever taken place in the world successfully. So the first one was actually done in Mississippi. Most people don't know that. And the person died. And then Christian Benara did it in South Africa and then Shemley in, in Stanford. The first one was done in December of 1967. I was not quite born yet, but I believe that I was created around that time. And I was born in August of 68. And by that time, the first transplants had been done and the technology was moving forward. Meanwhile, I'm just this little kid living in Rockaway, New Jersey, living my life, doing my thing, get diagnosed with HCM, live my life. And by the time I needed to transplant, Technology had caught up. It took it 47 years to get there, to be as good as it was for me to go in one day and come out 12 days later and get back to my life. That's amazing. That is amazing that it happened in my lifetime for my life.
1: And it's speeding that, you know, that, that it's the, the curve is just is speeding. And
0: we're going faster and faster and we're getting better and better, but it's... we can't break, we can't make people unsafe and we can't hinder
1: development. Agree. It's it's tough. And I do think patients have a role with patients that are listening. I think look what happened with AIDS. And when p- people started jumping up and down and saying, you know, we need help. We want help. So again, I think you know, getting involved with HCMA, getting involved with our group, getting involved. We don't do a lot of government advocacy. We want to help. We'll people.
0: drag you along when you need to. We'll bring you Yeah.
1: On. I think getting involved and, and making patients' voices known in the medical community, with the government, with biopharma companies. I think that's really, really important. Having a strong and a growing, stronger patient voice, I think, is really, really important. So don't sit in the corner. I mean, if you think, get involved uh, and make your voice known. That's really, really important.
0: I'm going to close on a thought. We haven't discussed this, but I, I can imagine where you'll go with this thought. I think cardiology, as as a class of conditions, has long been held as the personal failings of the individual with heart disease. We did something wrong. We ate fast food. We didn't exercise. We didn't. We're to blame. And whether or not that is truly what is felt by average society, it has been implied to me my entire life. If I exercised more, I'd have a better heart. If I ate different, I'd have a better heart. No. I stood up to make a comment in September 2016, at a meeting that was convened at a place called the White House. We were called there to talk about cardiovascular health in America. And I stood up to make a comment that it's not what's in your genes. And I put my hand on my hip, it's what's in your genes. And I said, We need to all start talking about genetic heart disease and we need to stop blaming the victim for the disease. We didn't choose our genetics, we didn't choose our DNA. And we need people to see us as a disease state that is worthy of their philanthropy dollars, of their attention, of their willingness to want to solve the problem because we are the silent disease until we're not
1: cancer.
0: Yeah, I, I, I often refer to, you know, this is what you do for cancer. When you're diagnosed with cancer, there's resources there to take care of the emotional needs, your food needs, your transportation needs. They have all kinds of great services. No dissing the cancer community. You guys have done an awesome job and we are completely jealous of everything that you've built out of the passion you had for solving that problem. So bravo to you, but we want it for cardiac disease too because all we tend to get is pat on the shoulder and see in three months. And there are no other services. We don't get harpists and dogs and all that kind of fun stuff, but our mental health is pretty frail too. And we don't have, a beginning, middle, and an end that is in a finite line. It lasts for life.
1: Agreed. And I think it is slowly but surely. And and I think I think I think it is. And and uh, you know I think I think because they came out with so many drugs that could just treat high blood pressure, cholesterol, you know, different things like that. You know, they could replace a valve and help a lot of people. And a lot of this stuff was just ignored and classified as a lifestyle disease you know, versus a, a random genetic disease. And I think even more with heart attacks, coronary artery disease, more and more has been a point. High cholesterol, we're seeing that, right? You know, high blood pressure.
0: Hypercholesterolemia. A
1: ton, of, a ton of genetic components to it. and and But, you know, you got to eat well. You got to try to exercise within doctors. You Absolutely. Know, recommendations. You got, we all have to take care of ourselves. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. But yes, genetic and predisposition- is a huge cause and the mindset of, I think, the general community has to change. And
0: we're going to help drive it there. All right. We are at the top of the hour. And Greg, I thank you for spending an hour with us on Tales from the Heart. Shout out to our sponsors. Thank you to Bristol Myers Squibb cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, and Embryo Pharmaceutical for their support of this and other programming that allows us to come and talk about things that are on our minds and in our hearts. So thanks for joining us today. We look forward to you next time. I'll be here with Joey next week. We're doing HCM Journey with Joey. He was recently diagnosed. He is a, um, a really fun guy to talk to. He has done some work in TV and radio and he uses that great radio voice to talk about recently being diagnosed with HCM and we are unpacking his journey of discovery and what his path will be so we started with his diagnosis in the last podcast and he's been to some appointments and we're going to catch up on that next week it's first time we're doing a project like this so come hear about joey's next steps and we'll see you next week on tales from the heart